that it was going to be way too much, the whole psalm in one service, so we did the first half this morning, and we looked at the whole idea of why people worry and why Christians can be despair <coughs> and what the solution to that is. And uh, we noticed that the psalm is split into four parts, and the second part begins at verse 12, the wicked plot. The third part, which we look at, begins at verse 21, the wicked borrow, and the fourth part we'll see in a moment, verse 32, the wicked lie in wait. And the whole psalm is a contrast between the life of the person who seeks to follow Jesus and what we were calling the functional atheist. They may not be an atheist, they may say they believe in God, but the functional atheist is someone who lives their life as though God doesn't matter or as though God was not there. So, <clears throat> let me read first of all in verses 21 to 31. I apologize I don't have these up on the screen because I spent ages typing them all out and this afternoon and then left the USB at home. So, that's just one of those things. Mary's shaking her head. She's going, that's so untypical of David. <laughs> Thanks, boss. Verse 21, Psalm 37. Really, really interesting description of the wicked, by the way. It's not, if you were asked to describe what is wickedness, you would not begin with this one. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give gener generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, but those He curses will be cut off. <coughs> if the Lord delights in a man's way, He makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with His hand. I was young, and now I am old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They're always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake His faithful ones. They will be protected forever, but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom and his tongue speaks what is just the law of God is in his heart. His feet do not slip. Now, I don't want to go into this in a great deal, but if you just, you have the words there in front of you, I want us to think about the poverty of life that you have if you live without God and the richness of life that you have if you live with God. The wicked borrow and do not repay. Some of you owe me money, and you don't want to be classed as wicked. Uh, I'm afraid I owe some people money as well, and I don't want to be classed as wicked. But what he's doing here is he's not just talking about you borrow off a friend. He's talking about a lifestyle. There's a lifestyle in which you are constantly seeking to get for yourself, and there's a lifestyle in which you give away. And that really is the major contrast that is put forward here. Verse 26 and verse 21, the righteous give generously. <coughs> verse 26, they are always generous and lend freely. I want just to take just a second to think about how we evaluate our Christian lives and where we are spiritually. And if we were asked to do that, I think there are many, many tick boxes that we would have, but most of us wouldn't take this one. 
And yet it's a theme that is constant throughout the Scriptures, that if you love Jesus Christ, if you follow Jesus Christ, you will be a generous person. There should not be such a thing as a tight-fisted Christian. Quite often, someone will come to the door here and they'll say, can you give me some money? You know, my bus fare home, uh, the usual stuff, can I get money for a coffee? Um, one man was quite ambitious, asked me for a train fare down to London, um, which was interesting. But when you say no, the smart ones go, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. I thought you were supposed to be like Jesus. To which my response is, no, that's the Catholics go to St. Peter's and St. Paul's. No, 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 I shouldn't do that. But it, it's a form of manipulation because what they're saying is true. And my only response to that has to be, I can't give you money because it's not enough. I have to give you something more. So sure, you think I'm a soft touch, you're looking to get some money <coughs> for food. Let's go down to one of the cafes and I'll buy you a meal. Or you need a lift home, let me go and get my car and I'll give you a lift home. Because in actual fact, it's of course easier to assuage your conscience by giving a pound than it is to actually deal with what's involved. Because the point generally is this. If you are a believer in Jesus, you will be a generous person, whether by nature you are a generous person or not, because God changes your heart. Now, why is that? Because we are released into generosity. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Why are people not generous? Uh, I look into my wallet, which amazingly I don't have with me, which is really good. But if I looked into my wallet and I wanted to give you some money and I was thinking, okay, um, <clears throat> there's 30 pound in my wallet, I would be thinking, but if I give you 20 pounds, then where am I going to get my cappuccinos for the rest of the week? Where am I going to do this? Where am I going to get? And I'll be worried about, do I have enough? Do I have sufficient? I'm concerned about my future. I'm concerned about the way that I'm going. I'm concerned about provision for myself and for my family. <coughs> and so that makes me very wary about what I'm going to give. But look at this chapter and look and see what it says. Verse 27, turn from evil and do good, then you will dwell in the land forever. Your future is secure, he's saying. Verse 23, if the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. Your pathway is firm. Verse 25, I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Verse 28, the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. They'll be protected forever, but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. And verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Let's say that you came to this city as a student, and you weren't one of these poor students, of course, there are not many of those, um, you were a, a, a better off student at one level. Let's say that your parents were very well off. Then you could afford, in one sense, to be really generous, because although you yourself may not have much money, you know that behind you, there is a great deal of security and support. Now, the Christian, no matter how much money we have, the Christian will be somebody who knows that because God provides for us, 
then we are secure. Our security is not in our financial insurance. Our security is not in our credit cards. Our security is not in our bank balance. Our security is in Christ, and therefore we can be generous. And that's a definition of your, we're looking at whether we're a Christian or what kind of Christian we are. <coughs> I would say that somebody who is so insecure that they have to hold on to every penny, they've got to really question where they are at spiritually. In fact, I think that uh, if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, <coughs> you'll see an example. I'm not going to read the whole of it, but really ch chapters 8 and 9 go on, uh, talk about this. You'll see an example of what this meant in the early church. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1, now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Now, if you read... You go home and you read through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you'll see all the basic principles of Christian giving that are there, including the fact that God doesn't want us to give under compulsion and that God loves a cheerful giver. But here really is the motivation for giving. It's not that we expect God to give us a whole lot back. It's not that we're investing in God in that manner. It's not that we're afraid. It's not that we're doing it out of duty. We're doing it because we glorify God and because we trust God, and because we have an overwhelming joy, even in extreme poverty. The way of the world at the moment seems to be this. Find a rich benefactor, and then things can go well. I've even seen this sometimes in, in Christian fundraising. But it goes on in our culture as well, where the whole idea is get people who are wealthy, and then they will give. But the Christian view turns that upside down, and there is this tremendous recognition that all of us are able to give and to share because of what God has given us. So, when this church was built, for example, there were people who were able to give substantial sums, but in reality, when the, the whole church was built, the whole church building was here, there was a scheme called a penny-a-week scheme. And even the very poorest in this area were able to contribute towards that and did contribute towards that. And the man who invented that scheme, Thomas Chalmers, one of his reasons for it was simply said, the poor have dignity as well. Do not divide the world into the rich who give and the poor who receive. The world is divided in this way in Christian terms between those who seek to follow God and give and those who are seeking just to receive for themselves. Because we have a confidence about our future, we are released into generosity. We talked this morning, about, we saw this morning about how this psalm de deals with anxiety. If you're about to lose your job, you can be very anxious. If you're concerned about paying your mortgage, you can be very anxious. We're in a culture which those pressures are upon us continually. But I was young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken 
or their children begging bread. Our present is provided for. And again, that's very important too, because a lot of us as Christians, especially in Christian families, say, well, well, I've got to have this, and I've got to do this, because I've got to provide for my children. And the psalmist is saying, but I've never seen the children of the righteous forsaken. There's a covenant blessing that occurs in this. Acts 2.39 says, the blessing is for you and your children. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, your children are holy, set apart for God. I once read a tract that said God has no grandchildren. That's rubbish. You think about it. You love your children. If they have children, then you love your grandchildren. I think if God loves His people and we have children, they're not grandchildren in the sense that we would normally understand. But there is a covenant blessing that is involved. In some churches, they dedicate their child, and in other churches, we, we would like here, we would recognize infant baptism. Christians disagree about that, but for me, the point is just simply this. In both things, we're saying to the Lord, this child is yours. This is your child. And that's why you will find that sometimes in homes which are relatively wealthy, parents are continually worried, and sometimes you can find in homes where there's a great deal of poverty and Hugh and others who've been to Africa can testify to this as well. That they've got plenty of reason for concern, and yet sometimes there's a joy and there's a contentedness and a peace because God will provide, God will bless. There's a covenant blessing. If we have that attitude, then that does bring us peace. Verses 27 and 28, turn from evil, do good, you'll dwell in the land forever, for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake His faithful ones. And I think it makes a difference in character. Those last two verses, verses 30 and 31, the mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom and his tongue speaks what is just. The law of God is in his heart, his feet do not slip. I think when we have that attitude, there's a peace within us, there's a willingness to be generous and open and to share not just money but in time and of ourselves, and there's a blessing that comes from God because of that. If you don't have that attitude, I'll tell you what happens you become a real grump and a moan, maybe lazy, maybe you're somebody who's continually getting angry. But this way, we're able to speak peace, to be a blessing, and to receive a blessing, both for ourselves and for those around us. Now, we're going to sing some words, uh, some of these words just now, Psalm 37. We're going to sing actually part of the next bit, verses 35 to 40, um, I saw the wicked great in power spread like a green bay tree. This is like this morning, we're using the older version because we couldn't find a tune for the newer one. Uh, he passed, yea, was not him I sought, but found he could not be. We'll sing these words. Um, I've forgotten what the tune is, Stephen. St. Anne, we'll stand and sing uh, these words and then we'll have a look at what they mean. Okay, Stephen, please. I saw the wicked great and far spread like a green bay tree. He passed, it was not him I saw. 
seated and let's read those words from verse 32, Psalm 37, verse 32. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous seeking their very lives, but the Lord will not leave them in their power or let them be condemned when brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When, when the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I've seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil. But he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. There is a future for the man of peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. It's interesting for me that I know that some of you will be really uncomfortable with the notion of the wicked. Um, you may have what I call a sun view of morality that, you know, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, and, you know, a pedophile serial killer you can call as wicked. But you really don't want to go around calling people wicked, do you? Yet the Bible says that when we reject God, that is what we are. And I know that one of the biggest stumbling blocks, not just for the Christian Union, but for anyone who seeks to engage in mission, is to try and show people their great need. And our great need is this, that by nature we are enemies of God, and we need our nature to be changed. We need to be born again from above. That God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes wouldn't perish but have eternal life. But whoever does not believe 
stands condemned already. And this contrast that's throughout the whole psalm is one that's implicit in the whole of Scripture. And the gospel is going around telling people, not telling people that they are saved or that they will be saved, it's telling them that they need to be saved and that there's a way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. And it's telling them that, yes, they must accept Christ. Now, there's a big fuss going around just now. For those of you who operate in the area of the internet and Christian DVDs and so on, about Rob Bell and his uh, latest video. Well, it shouldn't come as a, surprise, as a surprise to anyone who knows Mr. Bell or knows the theology from where he was coming, that he's now explicitly come out and said that uh, everyone's going to be saved. He is, in other words, what's called a universalist. And he's also said that what we are doing just now, remembering the cross of Christ, as it's taught to us in the Scripture, in other words, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was raised from the dead for our sins and so on, that He suffered in our place, He's also come out completely against, in theological terms, what we call substitutionary plenary atonement. Now, Mr. Bell has a reputation for being a great communicator, and he is. But I'm afraid he's not a great communicator of the Bible, because the Bible is making it very, very clear. There are two sides, and you're on one or the other. There's another interview with slightly better-known man, Bono, from U2, and he was asked about the love of God and the difficult passages in the Old Testament, and instead of avoiding them, I was really, really impressed at what he said. He says, sometimes love has to be tough, and sometimes we don't understand it. And I thought, how strange that the rock singer has a better understanding than the self-styled theologian. Here in this last verse, that contrast is set up. There's the wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil. But the certain thing is that he will not prosper. And the equally certain thing is, is that God will not leave his people. God, we stay in God's time, we use God's means, and we walk in God's way. And even though we may find ourselves bitterly oppressed, severely discouraged, we hold on. The symbol of the church in Scotland, as some of you will know, is the burning bush. Why? Because the bush burned, but it wasn't consumed. And that came in at the persecuting times, where the whole idea was the church was being destroyed, but it wasn't. It wasn't being consumed. There is a future, not for the wicked, there's a future for the man of peace, verse 37. There's no future for the wicked. It's an old saying, but a very simple one. If you want to die well, live well. God says, I have plans for you to give you a future and a hope. He has plans for His people to give a future and a hope. There is no future, no future whatsoever for those who reject Christ. Verse 39 the Lord gives salvation. He is our stronghold. Our stronghold is not our finance. Our stronghold is not our health. Our stronghold is not our popularity. Our stronghold is not our abilities. Our stronghold is not in our race. Our stronghold is in Christ and in Christ alone. I wonder how many of us sing, in Christ alone my hope is found, and it's an absolute lie 
because our hope is found in so many other things. It's a very brave thing, actually, to sing the Stuart Townend hymn. It's just a fantastic hymn. I should have chosen it tonight, probably, but it's a, it's a brilliant hymn. But we sing it because we like the tune. We sing it because we like the sentiments. But the expression of faith that it gives is a very powerful expression of faith. I trust in Christ alone. Martin Luther said this about these words in the psalm. Shame on our faithlessness, mistrust, and vile unbelief, that we do not believe such rich, powerful declarations of God, and we take up so readily with little grounds of offense, wherever we but hear the wicked speeches of the ungodly. Help, O God, that we may attain to right faith. In other words, what Luther was saying is this. The devil accuses us, and the slightest accusation, and we crumble and fall. The first bit of difficulty that we face the first question that we face, the first trial that we face in our life, and it all stumbles and falls apart. And Luther's saying, why do we listen to these whispers of the evil one, and we don't listen to these rich and powerful declarations of God? There is no future in rejecting God. There is no future in that. Some people talk about the Christian life like a bit like a gamble. They talk about it as a wager, uh, better known sometimes as Pascal's wager, that if there is no God, then what have you lost by being a Christian? But if there is a God, then you've lost a lot by not being a Christian. I personally don't think that that's a good understanding of Pascal, and even if it were, I don't think it's right. It is absolutely clear, it is 100% certain, no matter who you are, no matter your circumstances, if you live without God, there's no future for you. But it is 100% certain, I'm 100% sure, that if you know and love the Lord, then whatever your circumstances just now, whatever your feelings, whatever your fears, whatever your problems, whatever your difficulties, there is a future for you, a future and a hope. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. We are going to take communion in a, just a, a few moments, but we always read, and I want to read it just now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. It's the warrant we have for the communion. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to say that this bread there and the, the wine here are the answer to, I think, three, again, three questions that are addressed in the psalm. The first is, does Satan accuse you? Because he is the accuser. And what does he accuse you of? He accuses you of being a hypocrite. He accuses you of not being a good enough Christian, not being a good enough person. 
how dare you take communion, how dare you say you're going to follow Jesus Christ, and so on. Ironically, there are people who are very confident in themselves and say, yeah, that's no problem, I can do that. But it's often Christians who get battered and beaten by this. The answer to the accusations of Satan is not, yeah, well, actually, I did this, and actually, I did that, or actually, this happened to me, or actually, I had that experience. The answer to all the accusations of Satan is just simply this. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The wicked have no future. I have a future because I'm one of those who've taken their robes, as it says in Revelation, and washed them and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Robes is the things that we do, even the good things. I've taken them all, and I've, I've said it's in Jesus' name. It's in Jesus' righteousness. If Satan accuses us, this is our answer. I think this is our answer. The bread is our answer as well. When we, um, the second question is, do we feel that we are poor? That we are struggling with so many things? Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of the unrighteous. Here is our wealth. You, the um, Indiana Jones movies, uh, the ark and all that kind of stuff, when they're chasing after the ark, and then there's one when they're chasing the Holy Grail, and this is what you, you've seen uh, the whole thing, and it's meant to be this cup of eternal life, and it's meant to be so valuable, and people fight over it, and all that kind of stuff, and it's just superstitious nonsense appropriated by Hollywood for the sake of a good action movie. But there's one part of it that's absolutely true. You will never take part in anything or have anything more valuable than the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Not in the superstitious sense that I believe the Roman Catholic Church teaches in terms of the Mass, where it says that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ and the wine is literally the, the literal blood of Jesus. I think that's wrong. I think that's nonsensical and I don't think it's scriptural. But as we hold these symbols, as we take them, they are speaking to us of something that is so precious that if you were to sell everything in the whole universe, you were to take all the gold and all the plutonium and all the uranium and all the precious metals, they would be worth nothing in comparison with this. It is so valuable that it is beyond the comprehension of anybody and yet, as you take this, you're saying, I am rich. I am rich because Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. And then the last question, I think, is in terms of peace within ourselves. Some of us, and as we read in Psalm 37, this anxiety, this worry, this fret, this concern, how, how do I have peace and how can I be a man or a woman of peace? And the answer is simply, again, in the bread and the wine, that if Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, how will God not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? What is there that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? The bread and the wine tell you nothing, because there is nothing more powerful than what Jesus has done. So, we're going to uh, reflect on that. We're going to take communion together. I, I want to say to you that if you are a Christian, 
then the bread will be passed around and the wine will be passed around and um, I hope that you will confess your sin to God and that you will just partake of it. If you are not a Christian, I ask you not to take it because that would be wrong. You would be professing something that would be a lie and that is not worthy. It's not right. Um, you need to become a Christian and you're invited to become a Christian. But uh, for those of us who are believers, when we take of the bread and the wine, just think about the absolute assurance that it is. It's a sign and a seal and a symbol of God's love and God's promise to us that overcomes all the poverty, all the anxiety, and all the accusations of the evil one.